Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. C.S. Lewis said, in an experiment in criticism, those of us who have been true readers all our life seldom realize the enormous extension of our being which we owe to authors. We realize it best when we talk with an unliterary friend. He may be full of goodness and good sense, but he inhabits a tiny world. In it, we should be suffocated. The man who is contented to be only himself and therefore a less self is in prison. My own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through those of others. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What are stories? Why do stories matter? What makes for a good story? Joining us today on the Wittenberg Hour is Reverend Anthony Dodgers. Pastor Dodgers shepherds the flock at Emanuel Lutheran in Charlotte, Iowa, is husband to Betsy, and loves literature. Pastor Dodgers, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Pastor Dodgers, I ran across an article you wrote for the Godestines blog about why stories matter. I also had the privilege of attending your breakout session on C.S. Lewis at Higher Things. I am thrilled that you have agreed to do an entire series on literature for our Wittenberg Hour listeners. To begin, what are stories? I mean, this might sound like a strange question. Everyone knows what a story is, right? But it is good for everyone to begin on the same page. When you talk about stories, or as we begin this greater conversation about stories, to what are you referring? It's hard to not use just a synonym for it, like to say it's a narrative or uh, a, a myth or a tale. You know, there's so many different words you can use to, uh, in place of the word story. But I think one way to say it might be this, that uh, stories, or maybe especially good stories, are a way of communicating truth. And uh, I say a way because I, I think there are different ways that we can communicate truth. Uh, stories, the way they communicate truth is, uh, for the most part, by trying to show truth, to illustrate it by using images and patterns and experiences. That is, stories don't normally use propositions or proverbs or what we call facts. Uh, those are other ways of communicating truth, but they're not necessarily stories. And I think when you look at the Bible, you can actually see examples of both ways of communicating truth. We see uh, stories, historical stories, as well as fictional stories that are called parables, right? Uh, but then we also see proverbs, we see sort of uh, propositional truth related in the preaching of prophets and apostles. So there's different ways to communicate truth. and. I think this, a story is the way that you do it by 
showing something, by illustrating something, by using images and patterns, whether that's in nature or in human lives. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to throw it back to you because, like I said, it's kind of hard to define such a basic word. Uh, how, How do you define stories? Well, uh, I mean, since since you're opening uh, that door, I'm going to burst right through it. Um, as as my my scholars, they're probably already laughing uh, as as they're listening, going, "Well, we know what's coming next." Mrs. Benson is going to quote from Webster's 1828 dictionary. All right. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't want to disappoint anyone. So, uh, Webster's 1828 dictionary um, defines story. So, there are six definitions. That, that he uses for the noun. Um, I'm not going to read all of them, um, but I'm, I'm going to uh, just briefly mention the first five. They're, they're all very, very brief. Um, the first is a verbal narration or recital of a series of facts or in incidents, right? Um, and he, he says, we observe in children a strong passion for hearing stories. So I always like it when, uh, when Webster brings out, uh, sometimes he uses quotes, um, and sometimes he, he just kind of puts in anecdotal definitions uh, here. And so I, th- I think uh, that really brings to mind um, just this childlike nature of stories. Now, I don't want to derail us uh, in thinking that then, okay, well, stories then are only for children, right? Um, but it, just that um, I think that this this theme or this idea of of childlike and how we um, how we hear stories uh, even as adults, I think this this that he's capturing something uh, really profound there in this kind of just offhand we observe in children a strong passion for hearing stories right um, so that's his first definition um, and his second so his his first definition is a verbal narration his second uh, definition is a written uh, narrative right so uh, ver- verbal then written so it's interesting that he distinguishes between those two that those are different kinds of of stories right um, and then he, he says, uh, he reveals his bias. He says, there's probably on record no story more interesting than that of Joseph in Genesis. Uh, so I guess we know, we know where uh, Noah Webster stands on that. Um, his third definition is uh, history, just history, uh, a, a written narrative or account of past transactions, uh, whether relating to nations or individuals. Um, his fourth uh, definition is a petty tale, a relation of a single incident or of trifling incidents. Uh, And then he kind of continues that in his fifth definition by saying a trifling tale, a fiction, a fable, as the story of a fairy in popular usage story is sometimes a softer term for a lie. Uh, So that's kind of an interesting uh, kind of uh, twist that he gives us there at the end. Um, And, you know, that, that may or may not come out as we um, as, as we explore this further. Um, so, uh, just given, given that, you know, as kind of this broad brush, um, a thought on story from, from Noah Webster, um, is, is there any, anything that you'd like to respond to in that or, uh, a different direction you'd, you'd like to take with that, or, or perhaps you'd like to, um, uh, uh, argue with Noah Webster <laughs> and tell him he's wrong. 
<laughs> uh, I don't think I'm quite qualified to argue with him, but uh, I, I will comment, just make a couple comments on those. Uh, the first thing, the first definition about children uh, enjoy hearing stories. I, I, I agree with you that it, that might be an offhand kind of comment, but it actually gets to, uh, the, I think, the heart of what a story is and what makes a story, kind of in my definition, what makes a story different from other ways of communicating truth. And uh, and that is stories work on our imagination. And I think children naturally love stories because they sort of naturally have this natural pro propensity to use and exercise their imagination. And I don't just mean in, in make-believe things, but um, just in how they view the world. Uh, they're constantly figuring out how to make connections between things and uh, trying to understand things in a way that isn't simply, uh, again, just use that uh, word propositional. Um, the last, the, the end of his definitions, I might, uh, I, I, I agree that there are bad stories and there, that's, there are stories that do tell lies. Um, I don't know if that means that it, that fairy tales or fictitious stories are necessarily lies. I don't I, that, and I don't think he would. I don't think he would say that. Uh, but I guess I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, maybe if there's another way that I could take it a little a little bit deeper in a slightly or a slightly different direction, we could think about the. Uh, what we kind of call the three transcendentals, uh, truth, goodness, and beauty. And we could ask which of those three touch us most closely in a story? Which of the three kind of do we come into direct contact when we're listening to or reading a story? Uh, all three, I would say all three are involved in good stories. Bad story would you know, that's telling lies, of course, it doesn't qualify. But in good stories, all three are involved, but I think one is going to take the lead and bring the other two along with it. And in a story, um, I would say that that's beauty, that it's the beauty in the images and the patterns in the characters and the events uh, that of the story that brings truth and goodness with it. But it's beauty that's working on our imaginations so that we can apprehend the truth and the goodness. Um, to put it another way, stories work in a more emotional way rather than in a rational or uh, logical way. They, stories, stories don't instruct us as much as they move us. They they shape our affections for things. And I'll just try to give a simple example of what I'm talking about and sort, sort of the difference between leading with what I'm calling leading with beauty as opposed to leading with, say, goodness. So if you, you learn the fifth commandment, you shall not murder, goodness is taking the lead there, right? You have a straightforward moral instruction that this is good uh, or, or well, you shall not murder. Murder is bad, and uh, preserving life, protecting life is good. But when we're reading a story and someone is killed, does the author stop 
and say, now, I want everybody to be clear that this was a bad thing to do. We should not murder people. Uh, no, at least I hope not, because that'd be a very kind of pedantic, uh, boring story if the uh, narrator was constantly breaking in and uh, kind of explaining everything to us in a sort of moralistic way. Instead, in a story, what makes a story unique is that we see and feel the pain of the characters. Uh, we might even be moved to cry with them or uh, might even be moved to uh, anger uh, with them at the wrong that was done. Uh, the interesting thing about a story is, uh, especially especially fictional stories, that none of it's real, right? Those characters, even the one who died, that we're all sad about, we're all crying about because this beloved character has died, uh, they were never real to begin with. <laughs> but what is real is how we are moved uh, by it. But what's real is how our affections are being shaped by the story. And so we're not learning in a merely prescriptive way that death is bad, that murder is bad, but we are having an experience of that truth, uh, that death is bad, uh, that murder is wrong. Uh, as as you, you know, your quote from C.S. Lewis kind of says this as well, that we're seeing uh, the world through someone else's eyes and we're gaining an experience that we might not otherwise have had and we're learning from that, from that experience. And, and so actually, this really means that uh, the reason I wanted to kind of hammer home that stories work on our emotions and they move us, they give us experience more than simple instruction uh, is because this means that stories are very powerful, right? Um, and that also means, which, which can be used for good, uh, but also means that they can be very dangerous if they are moving us to feel the wrong way about something, right? If they're, they can be used to move people, uh, move their emotions in a very, uh, down a very dangerous path. But uh, we, good stories would uh, move us to uh, recognize goodness, to believe in the truth and to delight in, in beauty. And now, as you were, as you were, kind of expounding on that, uh, a thought came to mind, um, and, and you don't have to be familiar with, uh, the, the ancient progymnosmata. So that was, uh, that was the, the 14 steps, um, that, uh, for example, that the ancients would have used to teach rhetoric, uh, to the, the young scholars. And, uh, so step one, uh, is fable, and step two is narrative. So in in this whole long and and step fourteen then is uh, um, writing or uh, defending a law, right? Okay, so we start off with fable and and we end with with uh, you know. Uh, something that is is set in stone that is law, you know, and and all the steps in between. But it's it's interesting to me that right off the bat, you know, thinking about fable and narrative in the context of story, um, that that the moving of the emotions, that the um, the 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 drawing of the image in the mind, you know, working the imagination, that that is fundamental 
to rhetoric. And so rhetoric, um, as uh, Dr. Tolman, uh, who's now a professor at uh, Concordia Chicago, would always tell his scholars that um, rhetoric, it always has at its aim the truth, you know, and so I, I am fascinated with this um, kind of uh, the, the juxtaposing rhetoric and uh, propaganda, right? That, that propaganda is not a story because it, it isn't aimed at truth. It's em- aimed at deception, right? And so I think that, you know, as we kind of uh, tease these things out, um, the, the reality of, you know, the, the aim at truth, and I, I love how you put that together, you know, that, that beauty is taking the lead, but it's bringing uh, truth and goodness along with it, that those three cannot be separated, yeah. right? Um, and I think that that where where we start to lose those, uh, we're headed toward propaganda, maybe, rather than 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 rhetoric, because we're we're aiming at, you know, if we don't have truth along with that, uh, what might be perceived as beauty uh, is actually, you know, something posing as beauty uh, to try to get you to shift your frame of reference. Yeah, I, I think I think so. I'm also interested and uh, have struggled with what is the, that question of what's the difference between uh, rhetoric and propaganda um, and, and even when I'm talking about, you know, good stories lead us to, to truth and, and goodness, uh, bad stories don't. I was like, well, what exactly is the, <laughs> the line there? How do you make that judgment? These are really uh, thorny questions, but maybe even another, you know, you, you gave the example of that if there's, what appears as beauty might not actually be beauty if it's if it's dressing up a lie. Uh, another way I think that propaganda is different from rhetoric or uh, from from good storytelling is it could be it what the message could be I think uh, technically true accurate like relating it. This is. This, this is a, a real thing, but given in such a way that, that the hearer is meant to just sort of passively accept it with no real, uh, I don't know, apprehension, uh, it, 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 it ends up being kind of more manipulative, Right, and and I think that's a danger too. Maybe that's maybe that's where some goodness is lacking. That there's that there is uh, a lack of honesty about what's really going on here, where a, a story, for example, might uh, try to look like a good story to, uh, about uh, about true things, but it's really just trying to uh, manipulate little children into being good girls and boys and. You know, I'm not against children being <laughs> good, good, of course, but um, there is this there's this fine line. Same with between rhetoric and and propaganda. I think there's a similar fine line in stories between um, moving moving our our affections in in a right way towards truth, goodness, and beauty, and just manipulating us to try to just. I don't know, skip over some steps and, and just produce, uh, 
produce the end result with any without any of the the hard work, I guess. Right. Maybe a, a, a very simple uh, example would be uh, uh, tattling. Right, a child tattling. A, ch- a child tells a story to his parents, uh, but it's but it's not for the good of his yeah. siblings. You know, it's totally to manipulate mom and dad uh, to to be angry with or to despise or you know right. what, whatever. Um, and and so uh, in that that story, uh, the child is actually uh, perhaps. Uh, propagandizing uh, <laughs> rather than um, rather than uh, trying to bring about good, you know. But but he's posing as you know this uh, very I don't know maybe maybe we should bring in the phrase puritanical, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's he's trying trying to uh, you know moralize a situation for his own benefit, uh, sort of thing. Yeah, I I think that's a great example, and uh, of course the grown up version of that is gossip. Uh, when, especially when, when uh, you know, you tell someone gossip is against the eighth commandment. You shouldn't be talking about this, and they respond, "Oh, but it's true. It happened." It's like just because it happened doesn't mean you need to be talking about it, and especially not in such a way that you're talking about it. You're using this for your own, you know, sinful uh, ends. So, you no, know, that's a good. That's a very good example. So. As we think about uh, stories and as we consider uh, what they mean, and I, I think that we've we've already established in our kind of extended uh, discussion about uh, what are stories, um, that that stories have a, a very far-reaching influence on us, right? They're they're very much a part of the human experience, I would say, uh, perhaps in in that regard. Um, so, why do stories matter? I think, as you just said, and as we kind of talked about already, uh, they matter precisely because they are so powerful, uh, because they they have the ability to to move us in and shape uh, how we feel, how we think. Uh, oftentimes, without even realizing that's what's happening, you know that you you read read books, or maybe we should really we should be talking about movies too. How how much uh, the stories that are depicted for us in movies can can uh, shape us when we don't even realize it. Uh, but to to be a little bit more more positive, uh, I guess one of the ways I think that stories can can matter, especially for us today, is they can uh, help bring us to uh, humility and hope. Uh, these are the two two uh, sort of virtues that I guess I'd like to talk about today. Just as one example, it's just one way that stories matter. I'm not saying that that's all that stories do is give us teach us humility and 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 give us hope. But uh, I think it's I think it's a, a very um, far reaching. Thing that they do, and and I think it also is pretty relevant for us uh, today, especially especially in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, I would say both Christians and non Christians would agree that there's very little, very little humility and very little hope found in our uh, in our society. We have uh, 
disagreement over, uh, you know, harsh disagreement over political and social action, uh, and it just seems to intensify uh, as opposing sides refuse to listen to each other, right? And they don't, they're, they're not listening to, uh, they don't have their, their ears open to any kind of story. They're only uh, sticking with the story that they already know that they tell about themselves, uh, kind of like C.S. Lewis's uh, friend in that quote, you know, that he, he, did, he only wanted to know his own small little world. Uh, and I would say that's, that's the opposite of humility. Uh, and then uh, also we see in our world how uh, change uh, upheaval even can comes uh, comes so rapidly and even violently that people are just sort of left confused and frightened about the future and they just are are just sort of uh, as a pastor I find that people are kind of becoming shocked and paralyzed because they just like our world is changing so rapidly I don't even know where to go or where, where, you know, where to turn. Um, so I guess this is just one a way to illustrate why stories matter, that they can bring us to humility and hope. The funny thing is uh, about humility and hope is that you can't really get them by trying for them. You can't, you can't say, I need to be a humble person, so therefore I'm going to truly try to be humble. Uh, it's not really a work of the law that you can accomplish uh, in yourself. The same with hope. You, you say, you know, I'm, I'm despairing when I look around the world and things seem to be uh, terrible. You can't just create hope in yourself because well, there's only so much you can do, right? And so uh, humility and hope are things that we can't really create for ourselves. Instead, they have to be given to us or we have to be brought to them. And I think one of the best ways that that can happen is when we uh, tell stories and and remember stories. I don't know, maybe I have a little more to say about that, but what do you, what do you think, Jocelyn? Well, one thing that struck me as you were talking about that is that, number one, uh, to kind of follow up on that, that you can't will yourself uh, to humility and hope. You know that that's that's not uh, you know that's that's not something that that uh, like like you said it's uh, it's not of the law that we just you know if we try really hard we can we can do it. The other thing that struck me is that as this relates, okay, so humility and hope. If there if if we can't will ourselves to that, then they must be from outside of us, right? Uh, and if and if that's true, if if humility and hope are outside of us, then then is story also something that comes from without rather than from within? Yeah, I think that that's a, a great uh, way to phrase it, a very Lutheran way too, right? That that the word of God uh, and faith come from uh, outside of us. It's the external word that we need. And so I guess that's also why I think uh, stories matter so much is because that is one of the principal ways that the external word comes from uh, outside of us. What I uh, see spelled out for us in stories is uh, uh, 
patterns, uh, pat the patterns of God's work, whether that's his work in creation, and we might even say uh, not just God's work, but also uh, the work of man. Uh, that is our our human nature. Our human nature uh, is is quite predictable. Uh, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, and so stories show us the patterns uh, not only of God's work in creation, but also uh, how human nature works, whether that's uh, sinful or or redeemed, and then also uh, specifically in stories of redemption, specifically the stories of the Bible, we see the patterns of God's work in Christ and in his church. Uh, these stories, especially the stories of the Bible, show how God has mercy, how he keeps his promises, uh, how he saves his people again and again. And so in hearing these stories, we learn that he is trustworthy, he is dependable. And in these ways, both the stories of nature and the stories of of Scripture, they they give us um, consistency. They give us a, a re, sort of a reliability, an anchor uh, for us in all the chaos of life and doubt and despair. Uh, something for us to kind of go back to and use to make sense of what we're seeing, so that we don't just get pushed around. By, by life, uh, but we are we, we can notice these patterns and say, oh, I know why so and so is behaving this way because uh, you know nature has shown me or scripture has shown me that this is what that this is what people do, uh, or uh, what do we do in this case? We I don't I don't know where to turn. Well, you know, scripture has shown me that God provides that He is going to. Uh, you know, be there for me. And so by remembering and telling stories that kind of rehearse these, these patterns for us, uh, they, they give us the, the humility that we need to rely on God and also the hope that we need that he is going to keep his promises. Well, and and thinking about that, thinking about patterns and consistency, um, we can see then, um, you know, one of the ways this might manifest itself uh, is that, for example, the the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament, right? There's there's not uh, inconsistency in how God acts through time. And because of that, I mean, it just, as that plays out, you see all of these other things fall into place. You know, um, my, my boys and I are reading um, the Odyssey right now. And you think about, you know, the Greek gods and goddesses and their inconsistency. You know, yeah. they're 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 all over the place uh, in ter- in terms of 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 how they act um, and and uh, toward toward man and toward one another. Um, and and you you don't you don't see that um, you don't see that inconsistency with. Uh, with our God, you know, um, with the, the 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 one true God, um, and and so seeing that played out, then we can see how you know humility and hope are are something that can only uh, perhaps, and perhaps that's 
uh, not too big of a, a statement, uh, can only come from one who is consistent always. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, it's uh, I think that's actually a benefit of reading. Uh, you know the pagan myths and things like that is to kind of use them as a almost a, can be used as a as a negative example. You know how how is our God unlike these these gods and and these other stories? Uh, but I'd also just so no one thinks that I'm being too too negative against um, uh, you know against non Christian stories uh, as if you can you should only read the Bible or uh, you should only read. Uh, stories written by Christians or something like that. Uh, I would say that because God is so consistent, the true God who created the world uh, and created all the people that have ever written a story, uh, because He is so consistent, that that consistency, that the, the the patterns of His work, the patterns of of nature, uh, cannot totally be erased. In a, in a non-Christian story, that even non-Christians can kind of lead us in the direction, um, might only be able to kind of point towards it in a sense, in a, in a longing for some sort of consistency. They probably they might not really actually have the answer for how do we get there, but they can they can at least illustrate the human need for humility and hope in this case for for this for something that is. Uh, reliable and dependable. Uh, and as I said, it can often come in the form of negative examples, uh, such as such as tragedies. Uh, maybe we could go to an example just to try to illustrate this a little bit better. Before we do that, um, it, just so uh, our listeners understand, um, could you uh, tell us a little bit about tragedy, like just in a nutshell sort of uh, explanation, just in case uh, we're, we're thinking of tragedy in some other way, you know, when you say tragedy, to what are you referring? I would say, I mean, I'm, I'm typically thinking of specific tragedies. I guess when I, when I use the term, I'm thinking of the, uh, some of the ancient Greek tragedies that we you, you might have heard of like Oedipus Rex uh, you know Oedipus the king um, or some uh, tragedies of Shakespeare like like Hamlet or, or Macbeth and uh, sort of the general pattern of a tragedy is that because of uh, well especially in in Shakespeare maybe not quite so much in the Greeks uh, but because of some action by the the protagonist, they are uh, it, it. Well, it's the story of their of their rise and their fall. It ends it ends in their in their fall, uh, and in that way, uh, you know, a tragedy is just uh, telling the story of Genesis three without the promise of the savior. You know, so it ends it ends you kind of in in despair uh, without that. Um, promise of uh, of hope there um, is that does that help or can you can you add a little bit more to that? We a lot of times um, contrast uh, tragedy with comedy, 
right? And yeah. so these are some terms that that will probably come up um, more than once in our conversations. Um, but just thinking about uh, the rise and fall—that's kind of the nutshell thought uh, in terms of of this is a tragedy. Okay, so um, so carry that further in terms of um, of 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 where. Um, where that can help, where a, a tragedy can help us understand, um, you know, why why stories matter and 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 what such. Yeah, I guess uh, I'd like to go to an example to try to illustrate this a little bit, and uh, we'll go to the we'll start with a, a non Christian story. We'll go to the ancient Greeks, to the Iliad. Uh, now, I wouldn't you, you wouldn't necessarily classify this as a uh, you wouldn't classify this as a tragedy in in sense in the form of the story. It's called an epic, uh, but I would say that uh, it is nonetheless a rather tragic story in sort of a descriptive uh, you know sense. In the Iliad, you have uh, the Greek warrior Achilles. Uh, it begins. It, 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 Homer tells us at the beginning it's all about his wrath, right? His anger, his indignation. And uh, when you read it and you find out he's angry uh, about his king, King Agamemnon, who seizes his well-earned spoils of war. And from a Greek point of view, Achilles was right. And actually, I think that this is... This is quite instructive for for our uh, arguments and debates today. That many times you can be right and still uh, be, in, you know, incredibly arrogant and stubborn and and not get anywhere because you're unwilling to uh, have a little humility. And so uh, uh, the wrath of Achilles takes both the Greeks and the Trojans down a very dangerous path uh, that leads eventually to the death of his uh, uh, the death of Achilles beloved friend Patroclus um, to the death of Hector at the end of at the end of the Iliad uh, and to uh, and outside of the Iliad uh, to his own death uh, so the lack of humility in both, Agamemnon and Achilles leads to a very hopeless end uh, because even though we know in the the greater story of the Trojan War the Greeks were ultimately victorious there was there was great tragedy mixed in here as well uh, you know Agamemnon and Achilles uh, at some point in the Iliad they do kind of reconcile uh, in a way uh, not so much in a Christian way. It's 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 quite it's almost funny how they they kind of are facing each other and they can they can't really they can't apologize because that's not something that Greek warriors can do. They they uh, that would be a demeaning of their their honor and their glory, and uh, and so they basically you know I think Agamemnon, Agamemnon says something like, "Well, God made me do this." You know, you kind of blame, they kind of just blame 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 the gods or or whatever. Um, and uh, and and get on with it, but uh, that's you know that's not humility. That's not any kind of real repentance or reconciliation. And I think that it therein is is the seed for the the hopelessness that uh, that the story kind of moves towards. You can be right 
uh, and and still lack humility, right? So, uh, and and as you said that, my brain jumped to. You can be right logically, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, so your your logical argument can be true, but it's kind of like you can't uh, reason yourself to salvation, right? Yes. So I, I don't want to, like, uh, theologize everything that we talk about, uh, you know, uh, but but it just, it I, I couldn't help but but bring this up that, you know, and this is why, you know, again, quoting Dr. Dr. Tolman, um, just that, uh, you know, dialectic and rhetoric um, should be should be taught in tandem, right? So that we we have this logical understanding of the world, you know, and um, and and yet um, that isn't going to logic is not going to um, move the emotions, right? That's not the purpose of of logic, and and so uh, logic can only get us so far. And I think we see this uh, in in that fantastic example you gave of of Achilles. He was right. Uh, but he was also wrong, yeah. right? <laughs> you yeah. know, so he was he was right logically, but but he he failed to to have you know as this kind of uh, trifecta that we've been talking about um, the 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 beauty, truth, and goodness um, that that wasn't there, um, even though his logical argument was correct. In the Greek mind, uh, especially for for a warrior, they are so concerned with their own uh, with their own glory, with their their fame, that it kind of uh, it, it clouds everything else. And and I guess I I don't want to sound like uh, I'm saying therefore the Iliad is a bad story because it's a, no it, it's actually showing us I think it's actually showing us something very good and true but just in a very tragic way where we watch this and we see the inevitability of of what's going to of what's coming we see it all a tragedy sort of just um, it's it's painful to watch because we can almost see what's coming and it just keeps unfolding because uh, of of the protagonists, you know, they're kind of, um, well, I would, I, what I'm calling lack of, lack of humility in most, in most cases, uh, something about the, the, the Greek warriors sort of, uh, ethos is their need, fundamental need for what the Greeks called, uh, kleos, uh, that is their, their glory. Um, it's really for the Greek mind, it's the only immortality available to them. And it's really only attainable through death. That is through 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 killing other people and, and being killed in battle. That that's that is so that you would be you would be sung about after you're gone, right? You're you don't really live on other than in the the memories and the stories and the songs of the people as this as this great warrior and and i think as a as a christian we can read this and just be moved by how tragic that is how uh how very that is a very hopeless type of glory that there is no um you know hope of of resurrection or anything like that in in the christian sense and uh and so, not that we have to. Uh, again, not that we're saying. Oh, therefore, the uh, the Iliad is a bad story for Christians to read. But I think it it 
it can teach us truth by sort of showing us the opposite, maybe. Yeah, and we really see that uh, come out in, for example, um, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War when he records uh, Pericles' funeral oration. I mean, that's kind of the 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 whole uh, gist of of the funeral oration, which was required by law, right? You have to give this oration, but that was that was the thing. You know, we uh, we are not worthy to stand here. Uh, because we're still alive, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> essentially, you know, for the Greeks, uh, for the Greek warrior, um, you know, uh, to to die is gain. Um, but we're not seeing that in the same sense that Paul meant that when you know he said to live as Christ and and to die is gain. Um, there was there was an an end there that um, that that Paul certainly would not have uh, attested to. Yeah. Yeah. Can I give one other example of a negative, sort of a negative uh, example, a tragic uh, example of this? Yeah, absolutely. It, it might even be a little bit more obvious, and and that might be because it was written by, uh, well, I believe written by a Christian, or at least by a man who is very in- influenced by Christian Christianity, and that is Shakespeare's Macbeth, uh, a very you know classic sort of. Uh, one of the most famous tragedies, probably, uh, of Shakespeare. But you see uh, Macbeth and his wife. It, it, maybe if you don't, if you don't know the story, just briefly, it's the story of uh, that. The, so the tragedy is a rise and a fall, right? And so it's this this particular tragedy is the story of Macbeth, uh, this lord in Scotland, uh, and his wife who kill their king in order to become king and queen themselves, and that and they do they they succeed and then they fall and they and it all unravels uh, and so we see them give give themselves over to uh envy and pride that they that they desire to uh, to rule to have the power uh and so they attempt to seize that power by killing the rightful king and the the downfall in a tragedy is often it's so it's so <laughs> engaging uh in it, it, it captures us uh because again we just see it sort of all uh unravel uh that is there's something inevitable about it you you like you know you you pull that thread and you know if you keep pulling it's just it's just going to keep it's all set up and it's just going to keep on un, uh un, undoing uh, probably a modern example if i could give a quick modern example is um uh the show breaking bad uh you know where there, i don't know if anybody anyone watched that is not the the greatest show morally but uh it's a great example of the sort of anti-hero who the, the protagonist is this bad guy. Uh, and it really is, it really is a tragedy because you, you can kind of see where, where his, his actions are going to, are going to take him. Well, in the case with uh, Macbeth and his wife, uh, they, their actions in killing their King and taking the throne uh, are not only unlawful, but Shakespeare shows how they corrupt nature itself, that, that they are working against the pattern of, 
of creation, that they're working against the way that God has set up the world, right? When you, when you break God's law, you're actually working against your own nature because that's how God designed you. It's how he set up the world. And so they end up by, by trying to seize the kingdom, they upend the kingdom. And they, both of them, are even brought into to madness, uh, you know, that they just sort of devolve into into to beasts almost, and, and Lady Macbeth uh, takes her own life, and Macbeth is is killed in in combat. And so I think these negative examples kind of show us how lacking uh, lacking humil- humility, lacking the wisdom to see the patterns of creation, how God uh, orders the world, uh, just takes us down that that slope to, well, to hell. We see this kind of bringing, bringing this back around, um, thinking about, you know, beauty and goodness and truth and all of those working together, but beauty taking the lead in that, um, you know, that example of of Macbeth and and how uh, Lady Macbeth and Macbeth, uh, you know, that madness overtakes. I mean, that that chaos, you know, that that the exact opposite of 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 truth, goodness, and beauty, um, you know, we see that over and over in in story. And kind of going back to one of the first comments that you made, um, it's it's not just that we're reading it or hearing it, but through the words, we're seeing it, right? And so our imagination um, brings us into and helps us feel uh, just the, the despair and the, the hope would be, right, uh, that, that we would want to avoid that, yeah. right? You know, and and so it's not, you know, kind of, you know, going back to, you know, my uh, kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, puritanical comment, you know, it's not that Shakespeare <laughs> had to stop and, you know, bring someone on stage holding a placard uh, saying, you know, uh, audience at home, uh, make sure you don't, you know, <laughs> yeah. actors were trained in the, you know, whatever, you know, uh, no, no actors were harmed in the in the uh, performance of this play, <laughs> you know, right. sort of thing. But yeah. but there, they, you you don't need to know that that's bad because you feel that that's bad, and 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 your imagination and the fact that it's warring against the order uh, and and warring against hope and humility, um, you feel that viscerally. Yeah. And and we sh- and we should. God created. Uh, he, he you know he created our reason. He also created our emotions. Uh, uh, what I I think uh, what sometimes uh, are called our even our our passions or our affections, depending on sort of where they're directed. Uh, if they're directed towards sinful things or, or or good things, but God created that, and that's part of what being human is to to feel to uh, be moved. And so, yeah, again, stories uh, take us to, to truth just in a, in a little bit different way than, than sort of mere instruction. Um, 
maybe I could do a, a few good examples so we don't just just look at the the hopeless stories but also the stories where we see uh, humility and hope in action and uh, some of my favorite examples come from uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia and I'll just say one reason to look at the Chronicles of Narnia in a conversation like this is because C.S. Lewis knows precisely what he what he is doing in writing these fictional stories. His own stories are an example of how stories are meant to work. He he's trying to through through his fiction. He's trying to kind of show all of us. Uh, what we've been talking about this this whole time. Uh, he's illustrating it for us, really. So, uh, of course, we could look at, we could talk about Aslan, uh, but I thought it'd be a little more fun to, to look at some less obvious examples. And one of them, one of my favorite characters, actually, in all of Narnia, uh, is the Marshwiggle, Puddleglum, from the Silver, silver Chair. Uh, I, I grew up watching the old BBC movies, and I just thought uh, the Puddle Glum in the movie was so hilarious. And so whenever I read the story, I also... I, I picture that actor and his his voice. Uh, for any any, if you want to really um, be a little nerdy here, if there's any Doctor Who fans out there, uh, which actually I'm not, but I found out that that actor who played Puddle Glum in the old BBC series, uh, he is one of the original Doctors in the original series of Doctor Doctor Who. So some people might know him from that. Anyways, uh, Puddle Glum. Uh, is definitely a humble character in his way, in his sort of funny way, because he's he's almost, you know, you might say pessimistic. Um, at least that's how he comes across. He's always looking at the, you know, the 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 bad side of things, how things could how things could be worse, and uh, or how they probably are going to get worse. Uh, and yet, I would say that that's actually he illustrates in a funny way uh, a very humble, down to earth. Uh, kind of faith, uh, and he's actually the one that's able to hold out hope uh, to the other characters in the darkest moments of the story. Uh, so even though he comes across as kind of negative, uh, we might say he's he's quite realistic. And so uh, when it's when they need some real hope, he's actually the one that can that can give it to them. Uh, so you know, briefly, they end the. They find themselves uh, in an underground kingdom, and uh, an evil queen has imprisoned imprisoned them there, and she is uh, enchanting them to think that there is no Narnia uh, above them, that there is no world above ground, and that her dark kingdom is all that there is. Uh, Puddleglum is is able to uh, remind the other remind his his friends uh, of the true world above and he helps them uh to uh cling to just even the the little scrap of hope uh even if it is only in their dreams that uh he i think in in his in his humility and he you might know, as i said his sort of his pessimism uh he knows that he can't think his way out of this one he he can't uh, argue with the witch. He can't argue against her enchantment, but um, he can 
simply rely on uh, the stories that he remembers of Aslan and Narnia, and that that keeps his hope alive, even in those dark moments. I love this, um, just how integral uh, hope and imagination are, you know, that, that, that is, is there hope without uh, imagination? I mean, is there, is there imagination without hope? Um, I, I, I love wrestling with that and, and, you know, turning that over in my mind um, because I haven't thought about hope in that particular way as related to imagination. You know, I, I don't think I have either. Not you, you spelled it out there in a way that I hadn't, that I hadn't thought of, but I really do love that. And I think it is related to what Paul says about hope, that you don't hope for things that you see, right? If you see them, you don't need to hope for them anymore because they're there. Um, hope is hope is what's is is looking forward to something. It's looking at something that isn't right there in front of you, and so it's a different kind of seeing. It's a seeing that uh, of things that aren't yet uh, there, which is what I think imagination actually is. It's making uh, it's literally image making or image making an image in your mind of something that's not right in front of you and so i yeah that's a i don't know that's a great connection i got one other example from narnia if i could do uh briefly because he's one of my other favorite characters uh and that's the mouse reepicheep um at the very end of prince caspian you've come to meet reepicheep throughout the story uh, and you find you see that he's kind of a, a bit of a vain and arrogant mouse he's he's a bit like um you know, Achilles or one of these Greek warriors who's very, cons- very concerned about his own glory, his, per- his personal fame uh, and reputation. And at the end of this Prince Caspian story, he is taught humility by, by Aslan. But then we meet him again in the very next story, in the Voyage, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And here, uh, having been taught humility, he is the very image of hope. He is the one out of the whole crew of the Dawn Treader that never loses hope and, and, and never takes his eyes off what they're really sailing towards, uh, and that is towards uh, Aslan's country. So his, his prideful love for adventure and personal glory uh, has been redeemed, and it's what actually is spurring him on uh, to seek Aslan's country. Uh, And I just love what he says uh, here. Uh, I'll quote it uh, from Reepicheep himself. He says, while I can, I sail east in the dawn treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. I just think that that's a beautiful description of of the hope that we have as Christians that we that we uh, you know say every Sunday in the Nicene Creed I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Yeah, I I love that. Um, and and thinking about the relationship of humility and hope, 
it seems to me, thinking about uh, that example from C.S. Lewis and, and also uh, thinking about the example you just gave in, uh, in the Nicene Creed, that we can't have hope without humility, right? Yeah. That, that we, can't, we can't consider something that we can't see if we are, if we are bound up in ourselves, right? You know, uh, uh, that, uh, what did Luther talk about? That, you know, we're, we were turned in on ourselves. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's an interesting, you know, these, these words uh, are, are just exploding for me right now, you know, <laughs> as I consider them uh, in, in all new ways in, in the light of, of story, you know, um, Thinking about uh, the relationship of these things and, and thinking about uh, what makes for a good story, um, put a put a bow on, I mean, there's so much that we've pondered, you know, um, like, like I said, you know, I'm, my, my brain is just exploding with, uh, with, with joy, you know, in, in uh, pondering all of these things, um, kind of help us put a, a bow on on our conversation in terms of as we're considering stories, um, what is it uh, finally um, that that makes for a good story? Well, what we've talked about today in term with the the terms humility and hope, uh, I want to re- say again that, that those aren't the only things that stories give us, but uh, they are two examples of what stories can. Uh, maybe we could say inspire in us. Uh, I said at the beginning of our conversation that stories move us. And so I think what makes for good stories uh, is that they, they move us, they uh, affect us uh, and bring us to a better, uh, a better kind of seeing a better, a better vision of what is true, good, and beautiful. Uh, they, they don't necess- they don't merely uh, assert what is true, good, and beautiful, but they, they carry us along in our imagination, uh, so that we can kind of come to experience it in a small way, and then bring that experience from the story into our lives and uh, make connections uh, as, as we. Uh, as we go on uh, in humility and hope. Absolutely. You know, that's, that is fantastic. I know a lot of people begin a new year by putting together a book list for themselves, right? You know, these are the, you know, hundred books I'm going to read this year. That would be crazy. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, if you were, to recommend for our listeners uh, some books uh, for them to have on their list, um, either to read for the first time or to reread, um, what would you recommend? That is such a hard question for me, actually. That's almost as hard as, you know, asking me, what's your favorite book? (laughs) There's so many, there's so many good ones. And, and uh, uh, I, uh, I have learned the hard lesson of humility over the years that, uh, yeah, I cannot put together the list of these are the hundred books I'm going to read. It's just absolutely impossible, you know. And so every year, actually, um, my my book list 
does in fact teach me uh, humility every year because I get to the end and I didn't near, get to nearly as much as I wanted to. Uh, I also uh, have I, I keep hope though because um, you know there's always next year. Uh, there's there's you always you have time uh, throughout your life as much as the Lord gives you. Plus there's always more books, right? You, you just and and sometimes you never get to this one because you found all these other great ones, and that's okay too. Uh, so recommendations, maybe I can at least uh, give a recommendation, give some recommendations by way of what I'm reading. Uh, that's just the way that I guess I started to think about it. Uh, I personally love uh, C.S. Lewis and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, and so I guess. I would I would say to anyone uh, if you've not read the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings uh, I would definitely put that on your list for this year I'd say make 2022 the year that you're going to read those they do what we've been talking about today uh, as I kind of said that Lewis is sort of um, a little sneakily maybe uh, actually doing in his stories what uh, what he thinks good stories are supposed to do, uh, and he's and he he is uh, kind of teaching about stories uh, when you when you're reading his uh, his fiction. Those those stories, the Chronicles of Narnia and Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, are also uh, just they they hold up and extol the virtues of humility and hope in, in a way that not many other modern stories really do i think in my in my opinion uh however i want to say for those who you know have read or reread uh, narnia or lord of the rings maybe even several times uh i would ac- i would really encourage you to pick up uh, a trilogy by C.S. Lewis that's uh, often called the Space Trilogy. There's three books called uh, Out of the Silent Planet, uh, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. And uh, uh, actually, if, if you uh, you get into it a little bit, into uh, people talking about Lewis's Space Trilogy, you find out that it really uh, not supposed to be called the Space Trilogy. It's called the Ransom Trilogy, and they kind of circle around this central figure named named ransom um i would that i'm personally rereading that right now and uh there are connections in it with uh, all kinds of connections in it with paradise lost which i'm also reading right now uh and so it's a really fun way to uh it's sort of a science fiction way to uh learn a bit more about uh what Lewis is trying to do with stories and, and uh, uh, well, without going into too much detail, he is trying to reawaken our imagination as to what the universe is really like, what outer space, uh, so to speak, is, is really like. And he's working on the, the, uh, the older idea, uh, and, and even the bib- the biblical idea that uh, it's it's called the heavens, and this is the realm of, of angels and such. But I don't want to say too much more. I'd say just jump in and try reading uh, out of the Silent Planet, and and then go on to the other two in that series. Uh, 
I'm also reading uh, Pride and Prejudice right now, and I'll admit, uh, maybe a little uh, teach me humility again here, to admit that this is the first time I'm reading Pride and Prejudice, and I feel a little ashamed to admit that as, you know, you introduced me as this pastor who loves literature, and people are probably screaming, what? This guy's never read Pride and Prejudice? How can he be know what he's talking about? Uh, I know, I know, I don't know, I have a good reason at all for why I haven't gotten it gotten to it and I'm uh, I'm I've only just begun but I love it it's hilarious and uh, and I know from other from other uh, you know people uh, that all of Jane Austen is is worth reading and uh, I'll say on a, on a personal uh, personal note one of the main reasons I am finally picking up Pride and Prejudice and reading it this year is because uh, just in the fall of last year I got married and uh, Pride and Prejudice is Betsy's absolute favorite book. So uh, if there are any, you know, uh, well, both husbands and wives out there, if your spouse has a favorite book that you haven't read yet, I'd, I'd say go ahead, read that one uh, so that you can talk about it with them. Uh, and then lastly, I would really like to encourage people to try, uh, try out some poetry. We didn't really talk about poetry specifically today, and maybe that's something we can talk about uh, another time. I often find that people are a little intimidated by poetry because it's not as straightforward as a regular, you know, narrative uh, is. If you are uh, just want to try to try out some poetry. Um, I think a good place to start is with an anthology rather than than with a you know a book of a one particular uh, poet because you know one poet might not be to your liking liking and so an anthology will give you all different kinds different types of poetry different forms uh, from different time periods and so you get a great uh, variety there uh, which also helps that you're not just kind of stuck in one one format of poetry which maybe could get a little a little tiresome um, if you just want a regular anthology one of the the one of uh there's a lot out there one that i recommend is called uh, the classic hundred poems is edited by william Harmon, and uh it's it's nice because he he does uh with each poem he has a little paragraph at least uh explaining a little bit of the you know, the, the meter or the rhyme or whatever, the technical aspect. He's got a great glossary in there for explaining some of the technical aspects of poetry uh, and a little explanation of what some of the, uh, the images or metaphors are that are in that, are, that, are in that poem. Uh, however, maybe a little bit more interesting uh, idea. I just got done uh, reading a poetry anthology uh, that was put together by uh, 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 he's a, a chaplain in at uh, Cambridge University in in England uh, and also a poet himself. His name is Malcolm Geit, and uh, he wrote he or he made uh, two anthologies. Uh, sort of devotional anthologies. I just finished his one that was for Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. Uh, but, you know, Lent isn't that far away, actually. We got a little bit of time, so you can, uh, you know, get your Amazon orders in uh, in there uh, and get his, his uh, anthology for Lent and Easter. Uh, it's called 
The Word in the Wilderness. Uh, it's uh, edited by Malcolm Geit. It's a poem a day for Lent and Easter. And he really spends, he doesn't deal as much with the technical aspects of poetry, but he spends a lot of time explaining and really meditating from a Christian perspective on the images and the metaphors of the poems. And I, I think that that would be most accessible for someone who's really unfamiliar with poetry and how to, to read it. He really takes you by the hand in a very gentle way. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't destroy the poem by explaining it, but, but really writes a very nice devotion uh, on it. Uh, and so it just gives you one per day. And my last uh, recommendation when it comes to poetry is actually how to read it. I would really encourage, um, especially if you're new to reading poetry, don't try to do too much all at once. Just like one one poem a day would be great. Um, maybe even read it once in the morning and then come back to it and read it once, once more uh, uh, at night. Also, read the poem out loud. As modern people, we're very used to reading silently, but I think there's a great deal of value in reading out loud, uh, all different kinds of reading. Uh, you know, reading aloud to your kids is 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 definitely a, a good thing to do. I think reading the Bible out loud is also uh, very good to do. So you're not only getting it uh, in your uh, kind of uh, just through your eyes, but you're actually hearing it in your ears as well. Uh, but poetry especially, I think, is meant to be heard. So much of the beauty of poetry is in the sound uh, of words, the, the, the feel of the, of the words in your ears. So read the poem out loud, uh, maybe read the explanation or the meditation on it, uh, and then maybe go back through and read it again out loud. And I think that'll really help to uh, get a better handle on, on poetry. Fantastic. Well, I uh, definitely uh, will be adding some of these to my uh, Amazon <laughs> wish list. So, so that's that's uh, that is fantastic. And I, I love uh, the idea of uh, you know a, a poem a day. You know, I mean, we can all uh, certainly benefit from mo more poetry in in our lives. Pastor Dodgers, thank you so much. Uh, for joining us today. I am very much looking forward uh, to continuing this discussion on literature in future episodes. Thank you so much. It's been a real uh, privilege and joy. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.